Amen. All right, well, we're there in Numbers chapter 21. And of course, we've been uh, going through a sermon series through the book of Numbers called Wilderness Wanderings. And we've been going uh, chapter by chapter through this book. And we've been wandering with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And we've been looking at these uh, well-known stories. And today, we are here in Numbers chapter 21, and I'd like you to look down at verse number 1, if you would, Numbers 21 and verse 1, the Bible says, And when Arid the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Hormah. Now, in verse 4 begins a very famous and well-known uh, story uh, in, the, in the Bible regarding uh, the children of Israel and this episode that they had uh, with these fiery serpents and this uh, brazen serpent that Moses made. And I just want to give you just kind of what, by way of introduction uh, let you know that this morning we're going to focus on this famous well-known story here in Numbers 21. Now, it's, it's only a portion of the chapter, and what we're going to do is tonight for our evening service, we're going to come back and cover the rest of the chapter. We'll cover all of chapter 21 tonight, but this morning we're going to focus in on just this uh, little story here uh, about the brazen serpents and the brazen serpent and the fiery serpents. Uh, because it's a very well-known story and it's a very important uh, story. Notice there in verse number 4, the Bible says this, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And, of course, the word compass there or to com compass uh, means to go around. And if you remember from the previous chapter, uh, when we studied it last week, we learned that uh, the king of Edom did not give permission uh, to Moses and to the children of Israel to pass through his land. They had asked if they could come through the land. They said, we'll stay on the highway. We won't go into the villages. We won't uh, take anything of yours. And they were denied. And as a result, the children of Israel are now uh, come passing about. They are going around the land of Edom. And the Bible says here in verse 4, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. We're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, that little phrase, the souls of the people were much discouraged because of the way. In verse 5, the Bible says this, And the people spake against God and against Moses. And of course, we know this is a common theme with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They're constantly complaining, constantly criticizing Moses and complaining against God. And here we have yet another episode of that. Verse 5, And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread. Now, I want you to notice just real quickly here in verse 5 that their complaint is that there is no bread. For there is no bread, neither is there any water. We already had a big episode in the previous chapter regarding water, and we'll have it again later on in this chapter. And they say this, And our soul loatheth, that word loatheth, or to loathe, means to dislike, to greatly dislike. They said, our soul loatheth, and I just want you to notice this little phrase. I'm not really preaching on this. I just want, to, want you to see it. They say, our soul loatheth this light bread. And of course, the light bread that they're referring to is the manna that God has been providing for them uh, through the wilderness every day, except for the Sabbath day. Manna drops from heaven and is provided for them. And here they say, the soul, our soul loatheth this light bread. And the question that I ask, and I don't know if you're like me, maybe you, you are, maybe you're not, but I like to get into the story, and I like to, uh, in some ways, talk back to the characters in the story. And when I read, our soul loatheth this light bread, the immediate question that I ask is, well, I thought you said there was no bread. Because Look at verse 5 again. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread. They said there's no bread. But then in the next few statements, they say, Our soul loatheth this bread. And the truth is this. When they said there is no bread, they didn't mean there is no bread. They had bread. They had manna. What they meant is there's no bread they want to eat. Isn't this a common thing children say? Children are always saying, like, there's nothing to eat. And it's like, there's a refrigerator full of food. 
There's cupboards full of food. Your mother spent a lot of time uh, making a delicious, uh, nutritious meal, and you're saying there's nothing to eat. What you really mean is there's nothing you want to eat. There's nothing to do. Really? Because there's gutters that can be cleaned and backyards that can be uh, cleaned. And there's also lots of things. But what they mean is there's nothing they want to do. And here's what the children of Israel say. They say, there's no bread. But what they mean is there's no bread that they want. Our soul loathes this light bread. And let's be careful before we start complaining to God and others about what we don't have. When we actually do have it, we're just not satisfied with what we have. We're not satisfied with what God has provided for us, what God has given us. And this, of course, complaining episode leads into this story of the serpents, the fiery serpents, the brazen serpent. And what I, what I want to do for you this morning is I want to highlight for you uh, three different pictures we find in the story. Because what the story is in the Bible, and, and I'll give you a theological term if you'd like to write it down, if, just for your information. You don't have to write it down, of course. Throughout the Old Testament, we have these stories that are, uh, fall under a category called typology. They are types of Christ. They are stories that symbolize uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or symbolize aspects of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in this story, though this was a very literal story that actually took place, is a typology of several things regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and regarding salvation. I'd like to point these out to you. I'd like to give you three thoughts this morning regarding the symbolism or the types that we see in this chapter regarding salvation and the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you can jot these down on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. And I'd like you to notice, first of all, that the fiery serpents in this story represent or symbolize or picture sin. The fiery serpents picture sin. Notice there in verse number 6. Of course, we saw in verses 4 and 5 that they're complaining. That there's no bread, neither is there any water. Our soul loathe this light bread. They're complaining against God and complaining against Moses. The people spake against God and against Moses, what the Bible says. Then in verse 6, it says this, And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, when the Bible uses this term fiery here, it's a, using the word in a way that we don't probably use it today. And what it simply means is that the Lord sent uh, poisonous serpents. The fiery there is a reference to the fact that they were poisonous. The Lord sent fiery serpents or poisonous serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. I'd like you to notice that these fiery serpents are a type or a picture or symbolic of Sin. They are a picture of sin. And the reason for it is this, because sin, like these serpents, these fiery serpents with venom that would bite the people and poison the people and bring about death, sin is a spiritual poison brought uh, by a serpent. This is both literal and symbolic. Let me show you the symbolism. Go Keep your place there in Numbers 21. That's our text for this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter number 3. It's the first book in the, in, in the Bible. should be fairly easy to find. Genesis chapter number 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, of course, we find the famous story, the well-known story, the important story of Adam and Eve. And we find the story of the fall of man when sin entered into the world. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, I want you to notice the Bible says this, Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent. The serpent, and of course we know from the book of Revelation that the serpent here is the devil. The book of Revelation identifies for us that the devil is that old serpent. He's the dragon. He's Satan. He's the devil. Those are all terms used for him. Here we're told the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, the woman of course here being Eve, he said, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And by the way, let me say this. This is something that the devil often does, is he questions the word of God. He brings doubt upon the word of God. Hath God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Notice these words, lest ye die. And the servant said unto the woman, First he 
questions the word of God. Now he denies the word of God. He says, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And of course, we know as a result of the story that they did die. That day, they did not die Physically, that day they began to die physically, but they died spiritually that day as a result of sin. The sin was brought to them by a serpent. And in the story that we read here in Numbers 21, you can go back to Numbers 21 if you would. In verse 6, when it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, this is a picture of sin. And especially when we consider the fact that sin or the temptation to sin was first delivered, the poison that would bring death upon humanity was first delivered by a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And then these fiery serpents are sent among the people. They bit the people, verse 6, and much people of Israel died. And let me just say this. This is the result of sin. This is, the resu- this is always the result of sin. The result of sin is always death. You don't have to turn here. Let me just read these verses for you. Many of you are familiar with these verses. But in Romans 6.23, the Bible says this, For the wages of sin is death. And of course, we know that the wages of sin is, yes, physical death. We will die. Death has passed upon all men as a result of sin. But this is also a spiritual death. In Revelation 20 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death. The first death would be the physical death. The second death, you may ask, well, what is the second death? Well, it says, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What is the second death? Being cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So I want you to notice that we see a type here. And the type is this, that the fiery serpents picture sin. Sin is a spiritual poison brought by a serpent, both literally in the Garden of Eden and symbolically in Numbers 21. And sin is a spiritual poison that results in death, both physical and spiritual. And here's what we need to understand. Humanity has been bitten by this serpent, and all humanity has within uh, our blood the poison of sin. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, I understand that this is basic, and some of you may even roll your eyes and think, really, on a Sunday morning, this is what you're going to teach us? But it's good for us to remember that all human beings are condemned to the hell. It's good for us to remember that your neighbor has sin that will bring both the first death and the second death. Your co-workers, the people you meet as you're out and about. It's a good thing for us to keep in mind the fact that sin has entered this world. Death has entered this world. It's not just a physical death, it's a second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see that the fire serpents, they picture sin. But I'd like you to notice, secondly, this morning, not only do we see a picture of sin, but we see another picture as well. Look at it there in verse number 7. Numbers 21 and verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, notice what they said, We have sinned. What what does the fiery serpent picture? It's a picture of sin. These serpents have came and poisoned them. And their response is according to the typology or the symbolism here. They come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. I want you to notice. And again, I don't want to get too deep into typology and symbolism, but I do think that these things are accurate. I want you to notice that throughout the Bible, Moses pictures the law. Often throughout the Bible, Moses is a representation of the law. When the Bible speaks of the law, it speaks of the law of Moses. When it speaks of Moses, often it speaks of Moses as an embodiment or representation of the law. And I want you to notice that as a result, as a result of the serpent bringing the poison, which brought about death, the people then turn to Moses and say, we have sinned. The Bible tells us 
that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Here Moses is picturing the fact that he is the law. He is the schoolmaster. They're coming to him and identifying their sin. By the way, this is one thing we do when we go out soul winning. We show people and we begin before, of course, we can give them the gospel or the good news or the good tidings of salvation. We must begin with the bad news. And the bad news is this. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And our sin has condemned us to hell. We've broken the laws of God. We've broken the laws of Moses. And the laws of Moses should do this. They should identify for us. We should all look at the law of Moses and say, we have sinned. No one should look at the law of Moses and say, maybe I'll get to heaven. Maybe I'm good enough. Maybe I'll keep these commandments and maybe I'll keep these statutes and maybe I'll live a good enough life and that'll get me into heaven. No, no, no. If that's what you're thinking, you don't understand because what is required for someone to go to heaven is for them to be without sin. We must be without sin. So if you've ever broken any command, if you've ever broken any law, if there's any portion of the commandments that you've broken, then you're not good enough. They come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. And I will say this, that is the proper response. Maybe you're here this morning and you're very religious. And if someone were to ask you, do you believe that you're on your way to heaven? Or more specifically, do you believe that you're not on your way to hell? If the answer that you would give would be, well, I keep the commandments. Well, I live a good life. Well, I try to do uh, real good things. Well, then, then just know this, that's the wrong answer. The purpose of the law was not for you to look at it and compare yourself to it and say, well, maybe that'll be enough to get me to heaven. The purpose of the law was for you to look at it and compare yourself to it and realize that I've broken it and to come to Moses and say, we have sinned. I am a sinner and in need of salvation. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. It's interesting to me that the serpents represent sin, and what they ask is what, it's just to me, when you really look at the Bible and you begin to dissect it and really look at it, you, you just realize that this is a book that is much too deep to be written by a man or to simply be written by a man. The human nature that is portrayed in the Bible, it's so deep, it just has to be deity that has given this book to us. Because it's interesting to me that these individuals say what every individual virtually says whenever they're struggling with a sin that brings about bondage, that brings about death. Maybe, of course, we understand physical death and spiritual death, but we also understand this, that sin will uh, cause relationships to die and uh, sin will cause opportunities to die and sin will bring death to every area of your life. And oftentimes when people are struggling with sin, what they pray is this, take the serpents away. Someone's struggling with drugs or alcohol, and the, the prayer is, God, will you just take this uh, 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 temptation away, take this sin away? Will you just somehow cure me or, or, or heal me or just miraculously make this go away? They respond with this request, take away the serpents. Take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent. I want you to notice that God did not answer their request because their request was take away the serpents. And the Bible does not say that, that God answered the prayer of Moses and took the serpents away. No. He did not take the serpents away. But he did make a way to escape. He did not take the serpents away. But he did give an answer. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 8, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. I want you to notice here that God instructs Moses to make a serpent out of metal, out of brass, he said, I want you to take brass and I want you to form uh, an, an, an image that 
looks like these fiery serpents that are biting the people. I want you to make this fiery serpent. I want you to place it upon a pole, and then it shall come to pass. I'm not going to take the serpents away, but it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Moses makes this serpent of brass, and by the way, even today... If you walk into any sort of hospital or medical uh, facility, you'll find that a, a serpent upon a pole is a medical image even used today that symbolizes healing. And that should just tell you something about the impact of the Bible. Why are there ambulances driving around town with a picture of a serpent upon a pole? That's from the Word of God. That's from the Bible. It's these, this serpent upon a pole that is lifted up that represents healing. But it's more than that. Now, you're there in Numbers 21. Continue to keep your place there, please. And go with me, if you would, to the book of John. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What's significant about this story is that it's actually referenced by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Remember the famous story of Nicodemus with the Lord Jesus Christ? Nicodemus came by night and asked Jesus about salvation. And of course, the famous words that we think about when we think about his conversation with Nicodemus is the fact that Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. But in that conversation, Jesus actually references back this story that we're looking at in Numbers 21. Why don't you notice it? John chapter 3, verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. If you've got a red letter edition Bible, these words will be in red because they're the words that Jesus spoke on this earth. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Why don't you notice that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he brings up this story in Numbers 21 and he's about to make an application. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This is an interesting uh, uh, story, and it's an impactful story, not just because it's an interesting story in the Old Testament, but because Jesus himself would bring it up as a type, as a symbolism, as an example. Now, what Jesus makes in the next few statements, if you've never heard this teaching before or really thought about this, may be confusing to you because I remember when I first uh, began to look at the story and to consider the story, it was uh, an, an interesting thought to me because it seemed a little confusing. And the reason for it is this. Here's what Jesus says, John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, here's the application, in the same way must the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Jesus referring to himself. That was the title that was used for Jesus. He says, in the same way, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's a little odd because Jesus is comparing himself to the serpent on the pole. He says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and, and we ask this question, well, what is Jesus referring to? And the answer is this. When Jesus is referring to the Son of Man being lifted up, he is referring to his death on the cross. Let me just give you a proof of that. Go to John chapter 12. You're there in John chapter 3. John chapter 12. Jesus was lifted up on the cross like the brazen serpent was lifted up on the pole. Jesus was lifted up on the cross like the pole that lifted up the serpent. The cross lifted up Jesus like the pole lifted up the serpent. John 3, verse 4, uh, John chapter 12, verse 32. Notice what the Bible says. And I, this again is Jesus speaking. And I, notice what he says. If I be lifted up from the earth. Just what he said in John 3, 14. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up? He says, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So well, what is that talking about? Well, the Bible tells us what he's talking about in verse 33. This he said, signifying what death he should die, or what kind of death he should die. And of course, we know that 
The death that he was referring to was the death of the cross. The fact that Jesus would be placed upon a cross and lifted up and that in the same way, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So here's what we see, that Jesus was lifted up on a cross like the serpent was lifted up on a pole. Now, if, you, if you're like me, you'd ask the question, because this is the question that I asked and that I actually struggled with for a while. Obviously, I preached on this subject uh, already years ago, but when I first began to look at this, I thought, this doesn't make sense to me. And, 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 and the question that I asked was this, and I'd ask you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. Uh, John, you're there in the book of John. After John, you have Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The question that I asked is this, why would a serpent represent the Lord Jesus Christ? That seems kind of odd to me. And it seems odd because all throughout the Bible, serpents are bad. Snakes are bad. I hate snakes. I I think they're disgusting. I know some people like snakes or whatever. You can be weird if you want. But serpents, to me, are disgusting. They're weird. There's two things I hate that just kind of like, ah, are snakes and and the, the tail of a rat. Just I to me the tail not necessarily the rat but the tail of a rat is just ah disgusting I think that's my opinion. If you like him, whatever we love you. Jesus forgives sin, whatever. But the question that I always ask is why why would a serpent represent Jesus? Because serpents throughout the Bible are bad. And look, I'm not trying to offend you. If you like serpents, you know snakes are bad in the Bible. Just if you if you need to feel better, so are dogs. Dogs are always bad in the Bible. No offense, all right. I've got, I've got a dog, and and she's bad. <laughs> she's a dog, but anyway, I don't know how I got on that on that subject. Here's the point: in the garden, Satan was a serpent. Throughout the Bible, the Bible in the Book of Revelation tells us that old serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, serpents are bad. So to me, it's this idea like, why would Jesus be represented by a serpent? Because the devil's represented by a serpent. Why would Jesus be represented and be representing himself and saying, hey, there's a typology here. There's a type. Because oftentimes, typologies in the Bible are positive. For example, here's another typology, Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob, is a type of Christ. Now, he's not Christ. He's just symbolic of Christ. He uh, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And I won't take the time to go through all the different things and analogies and symbolism that there is there, but if you ever read the story of Joseph looking for types of Christ, you'll find that he is a type of Christ uh, like uh, probably like no other. He was betrayed by his brethren. He brought deliverance. He gave them forgiveness. I mean, all sorts of things. Here's another type in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. When Abraham takes Isaac in Genesis 22 up on the mount, all of that is a type and typology. Obviously, it's a real story that actually happened, but it's all uh, symbolism of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father sending the Son to be sacrificed for our sins. Usually, types are positive. Here, we have this one, and it's not so much. It's Jesus saying, I'm like that serpent on the pole. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me, signifying what death he should die. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, is what he said. Now this makes sense when you understand what Jesus became on that cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, I'd like you to notice that there's lots of verses we could look at. We'll just look at this one. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, the Bible says this, For he, that's God the Father, hath made him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. For he hath made him, notice these words, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells us that Jesus on that cross became sin for us. That helps us understand why he would say, I'm like a serpent on that pole. 
Jesus was not a serpent. He knew no sin. He lived a righteous life. He lived a perfect life. But on that cross, he became sin for us. The sins of humanity were laid upon him. The Bible here tells us, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible teaches, and by the way, this is just good teaching on salvation that we should be reminded of, that salvation is this. You have poison running through you called sin. It will kill you. It will send you to hell. But Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. And he did that by taking our sins, becoming sin for us. He became that serpent on the pole. And when you understand that, you realize that your works have nothing to do with salvation. There's nothing in this typology that says, well, we got to try to tame the serpents. We got to try to uh, turn over the serpents. Maybe we can, like a circus uh, show, tame them, and, 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 or like Pentecostals play with them or something. There's nothing. In fact, they asked, take away the serpents. He said, no. The serpents will not be taken away. I don't care how many times you get baptized. I don't care how many times you turn over a new leaf. I don't care how many times you make promises or you decide you're going to do something different. I don't know how many times you cry and you weep and you repent of your sin. The sins, the serpents are staying. Well, how can I deal with the problem of the serpents? One way, there's a serpent that was put on a pole. The Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us. For he hath made him to be sin. For us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So I'd like you to notice that the fiery serpents picture sin. And then this brazen serpent pictures the Savior. The brazen serpent is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, the Lord Jesus Christ is a serpent. Well, He wasn't a serpent, but on that cross, He took the sins of mankind. And on that cross, He became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So we see the fiery serpents picture sin. We see the brazen serpents picture the Savior. And I'd like to notice, thirdly this morning, there's another type, another symbolism. Go back to Numbers 21. Keep your place in John, if you would, or 2 Corinthians, just somewhere in there, and go to Numbers 21. I can notice the third part of the story, Numbers 21, verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, notice, when, notice these words, when he looketh upon it, shall live. When he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a, serp- a, a, that if a serpent had bitten any man, notice these words, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The Bible here is giving us an illustration that when someone were to look at this serpent on this pole, which pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, when he looketh upon it shall live. When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Go to Acts chapter 16, if you would, in the New Testament. I'm not sure. If you kept your place in John, right after John, you have, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the book of Acts. If you, if you kept your place in 2 Corinthians, you can go backwards, 1 Corinthians, Romans, into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Let me be clear about something. The Bible says that salvation is not based on works. Salvation is not based on things you do to earn salvation. Salvation is not based on the things we do. They're not, it's not based on works, not based on the things that we do. Acts chapter 16, if you would. Look at uh, verse number 30, Acts 16 and verse 30. The Bible says this, And brought them out and said, here's a story, of course, the Philippian jailer. He brings... Paul out, and he asks this very important question. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. The Bible is clear about the fact that salvation is through believing. It's through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Salvation is not based on anything you do to earn salvation. Now, 
we often focus on this idea of works, and I don't think that's wrong. That's a good thing. In fact, I'd like you to go to Ephesians chapter number 2. You're there in Acts. You go past Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I know you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, but I want us to look at it. Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse number 8. We often focus on this thought of works. But what I've noticed and what I've learned is that though the Bible is clear that salvation is not of works, what people often, the way they define works, makes them not understand clear portions of Scripture. And look, when it comes to the Bible, we should always put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. Sometimes individuals, and I think their heart's in the right place, but they try to emphasize things that God has not emphasized. And my job and your job as Bible-leaving Christians, as Baptists, as Biblicists, as students of the Word of God, is to look at the Bible and to not look. When you're more spiritual than the Bible, you're too spiritual. Now, you're not more spiritual than the Bible. When you're more spiritual than the Bible, you know what you are? is a hypocritical Pharisee. We must put the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And the Bible says here in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. The word grace means unmerited favor, meaning you're receiving something you do not deserve, you do not merit it. I often explain to people the word grace when I'm out soul winning, the word grace means free. Like at your house, or your mortgage, or your rent, you probably, for your payment, have a grace period. Your payment's due on the first, they give you to the fifth to pay. They call that a grace period. That period is a amount of free time. That's what the word grace means. You're getting something for free. You didn't earn it, you didn't pay for it. For by grace are you saved through faith. The word faith means to believe. And that not of yourselves. What's not of yourselves? Being saved. Grammatically, that's what the phrase, I know Calvinists like to say, oh, the faith's not of yourself. That's not what it says. The, the subject is that we are saved through faith. It's by grace, through faith, but the subject is saved. And it's not of yourselves. You're not, you don't save yourself. You and I do not produce salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Why? Because we are sinners. We've already been bitten with the poison of death. This is what I always think is funny to me because people will say like, well, if I do enough good things. But here's the thing. All the good things you do will not undo the fact that you're already a sinner. I, I, sometimes I use this illustration with people. I'll say, look, imagine if I stole a car. I, I, I steal a car. I part it out. I sell it. It's gone. And I get arrested. I'm standing before a judge. You think if I walk into that courtroom and say, from now on, I'm going to stop stealing cars. And in fact, I'm going to be, live a really good life. I'm going to help little old ladies cross the street. I'm just going to be an upstanding citizen. You think the judge is going to say to me, okay, you're good to go, no problem. The answer is no. And the answer is no because the problem is I already stole the car. I've already broken the law. That deserves punishment. No matter what I do after that, I'm a sinner. I've been bitten. So the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation, look, the subject of salvation, salvation is a gift. You say, why are you uh, emphasizing salvation? Look, I'm not going to assume that in, two, that in a crowd of 240 people, everyone here is saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Then it says this, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I love that phrase. I mean, I love all of the Bible. The fact that the Bible says it's not of works, then is clear. But remember, we must put the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And the problem that I find is that sometimes people, and I use the word Pharisee on purpose because they turn the word work into any action. And it's like the Pharisees in the Old Testament when God said, I don't want you to work on the Sabbath day. And then they took it to say, God doesn't want you to do anything. You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath day. You can't do anything action on the Sabbath day. But wait a minute. Is that what God said? 
God said, I don't want you to do any actions on the Sabbath day. No, he said, I don't want you to work on the Sabbath day. You say, well, what's the difference between work and doing something? Work is when you do something for the purpose of earning. Let's put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. What is being said here when it's being said it's not of works? It's not being said that there's no action that is involved or that could be involved with salvation. It's saying that there's no action that you are trusting in to save you. Because it's of grace through faith, not of yourselves, and therefore not of anything you're doing that you trust for salvation. Let me prove it to you even further. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 7. I'm not talking about verse 7, but I just want you to see it for context. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Look at verse 13. In whom ye also, look at this word, trusted. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye, notice this word, believed. Now, the Bible just defined for us the word believe. It used two words interchangeably, in whom ye also trusted and in whom ye also believed. Why does the Bible do this? Well, the Bible does it because the Bible is its own dictionary. We should allow the Bible to teach us. We should put the emphasis where God places the emphasis. We don't need to go to a commentary or some man's dictionary to tell us what the Bible means. The, the word of God itself, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, will tell us what it means. Because oftentimes words have multiple meanings. For example, the word believe can mean to just believe in the existence of something. Like, I don't believe in Santa Claus, right? And in fact, the Bible even uses that word in that, in that context because the Bible says that the devils believe in God and tremble. But when the Bible says that the devils believe in God, does it mean that the devils are saved? They place their confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what it means? No, it means that they understand, they acknowledge the fact that there is a God that exists. But when the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, it's not saying believe that Jesus existed to be saved. It's saying, put your trust and confidence in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let's, let's, let's allow the Bible to tell us what these words mean. When we use the word believe, we mean trust. Isn't that clear from the Bible? When we use the word work, we mean earn. Isn't that clear from the Bible? I mean, that's what the Bible says. Again, let's allow the Bible to... Give us the emphasis. Go to Romans chapter 11. Let me show it to you even further. Romans 11 chapter 6. Allowing the Bible to tell us where we ought to place the emphasis. So when the Bible says not of works, should the emphasis be placed on do no action? Don't do anything. We're going to pray right now for you to receive Jesus, but... Don't move. Is that where the emphasis is being played by the word, placed by the Word of God? I think if you're honest, you'd say the answer is no. The emphasis is being placed on this idea. Don't earn. Don't try to earn salvation. Don't try to work for salvation. Let's look at it even further. Romans 11, verse 6. And if by grace, the word grace means free, unearned, unmerited, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Work means what? Action? No, it means to earn, to pay for. Now, does that make sense? If it's by grace, then it's not of works. How about this? Does this make sense? If it's free, then you don't pay for it. If it's free, then you don't earn it. If it be of grace, then it is no more work. Why? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. Doesn't it make sense? If it's free, then you don't pay for it. Otherwise, it's not free. And then just to make sure we get it, because Paul is putting the emphasis where God places the emphasis, he says it again in a different way. He says, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Doesn't that make sense? If you earn it, then it's not free. Otherwise, you didn't earn it. He says, look, 
If it's free, you don't earn it. Otherwise, it's not free. And if you earn it, then it's not free. Otherwise, you have not earned it. And that's the answer to those who say, oh, no, salvation is Jesus plus my works. You can't have it both ways. It's either free or you paid for it. It's not like he put the down payment and I made the last payment. That's not how it works. If it's free, then I didn't pay for it. And if I paid for it, then it's not free. Salvation is not based on things you do to earn salvation. Go to Romans chapter 10. However, when we allow the Bible to place the emphasis where God places the emphasis, then we learn something. And what we learn is this, that though salvation is not based on things you do to earn it, Salvation does require you to do something. Well, I can't imagine. Well, no, we can't do anything. Well, you shouldn't do anything to earn it. But just because you're doing something doesn't mean you're doing it to earn it. Do you understand what I just said? Don't work on the Sabbath day doesn't mean don't light a fire, don't carry a bed, don't do it, don't even get out of bed, just be still all day long. That's not what Jesus was saying. That's not what God was saying. Don't work, do something to earn money on the Sabbath day. Take the day off. It doesn't mean you can't go on a walk and can't do other things. You say, why are you emphasizing it? Here's why I'm emphasizing it. Because in Numbers, keep your place there in Romans, go back to Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. The Bible says in verse 8, and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he, notice these words, looketh upon it. They have to do something. Shall live. Now, were they earning? Were they at work? When they were looking upon it, were they at work at that moment? No, but there was an action. See, don't, don't take the word works and give it a definition that God never gave it. Let's place the emphasis where God places the emphasis, and the emphasis on the word work is earn, not action. The Bible says here that they had to look upon it. Notice verse number uh, 9. Well, look at the last part of verse 8 again. Look upon it shall live, verse 9. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put, a, uh, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. They had to behold. They had to look. They had to look at it. Now, looking at it was not a, a, a reflection of them earning or working, but looking upon it was a reflection of their faith. So let me be clear. Salvation is not based on things you do to earn salvation. But that doesn't mean that there, are things you should, that there aren't things you need to do in order to be saved. Now, the things you do, if you're doing them, as a work, meaning you are trying to earn salvation, the opposite of grace, then that won't work. You'll die and go to hell. But if what you're doing is a reflection of your faith, then all you're doing is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, the story is actually, there's a hymn that's associated with it. Famous hymn, well known, Look and Live. I like, I, like the, I like the words. The words of the hymns say this. Life is offered unto you. Hallelujah. Imagine those being bitten by serpents. Moses holding the pole up high. And, and, and imagine Moses, and I know he didn't, but imagine him singing these words and saying these words. Hey, life is offered unto you. Hallelujah. Eternal life your soul shall have if you'll only look to Him. Hallelujah. Look to Jesus who alone can save. I will tell you how I came, hallelujah, to Jesus when He made me whole. T'was believing on His name, hallelujah. I trusted and He saved my soul. Look and live, my brother. Live. Look to Jesus now and live. T'was recorded in His word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. See, there's a type here with this look. There's an action that needed to be done. Now, here's the thing. Today, you and I cannot physically look to Jesus. 
But yet the Bible tells us there's something that will come as a result of our faith. Let's look at it quickly. Romans chapter 10, if you would. In our symbolic story, they had to look. It's a type. In real salvation, there is also something that must be done. Not as a work because we're not earning salvation. But if you're mixed up with that, it's because you've added a definition to the word work that is not a biblical definition. The word work does not mean to do any action. It means to earn. Romans 10, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. But what saith it? The, notice this word. Word. The word is nigh. I just want you to look at the context. The word nigh means near. The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth. And thy heart that is, notice these words, the word of faith. I just want you to notice the, 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 these concepts. Mouth, heart. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. And the word that is nigh thee is even in thy heart. Simultaneous. It's in thy mouth and it's in thy heart. You say, well, I don't get it. Is it, is it, is it a word or is it faith? Well, it's the word of faith, which we preach. Verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Look, there's something that needs to happen here. There's, a, there's something that needs to be done in action. You say, oh, that's adding works to salvation. Well, if you're trusting in the prayer to save you, then yeah, you shouldn't do that. But if you're praying and calling upon the Savior you're trusting, that's not works. That's just looking at the pole. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. Then people make, they have this, these arguments. Well, which one is it? When does somebody get saved? Is it the moment they pray? Like, as soon as they say amen, and then they believe, then they got saved. Or do they believe first, and then they're saved for a split second, but then they say the prayer. Look, let's put the emphasis where God places the emphasis. Amen. Oftentimes, the plain thing is the main thing. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He said to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Then people get all mixed up on this. Well, how does the order work? Which one comes first? Do they believe it? Well, just to make it a little more confusing, in verse 10, because Paul knew that people would get these things, then he switches the order. For with the heart men believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, which one is it, Paul? Do we believe, confess with our mouth and believe in our heart? Or do we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth? Here's the answer, yes! Here's the answer, both! Here's the answer, if you believe that the serpent being held on the pole will uh, save you and bring salvation to you, you'll look. And it's silly, it's silly to be bit by a poisonous snake lying there having fire across your body as you die with Moses saying, look and live, my brother, live. And for you to say, no, I won't look because that works. I'm not going to look. Yet today people will say, will say, call upon the Savior to say, I won't call, that works. Well, then die. Because if you believe that the pole, the serpent on the pole will save you, you know what you'll do? Look. Amen. And if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But also with your heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, the word of faith which we preach. Look at verse 11. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth. You say, no, it's whosoever believeth. That's what saves you. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Okay, look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, no, no, no. It's, it's not calling, it's believing. Well, there's a verse that says both. There's a verse that literally says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, which means to be saved. And then there's a verse that says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, which one is it? It's this, look and live, my brother. Look and live. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 13, if you would. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13. Just give you one last reference on this. Look, don't tell me that them looking was some sort of 
work. Was it an action? Yes. But were they trusting in it? No. Let's place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And don't tell me that calling upon or confessing with your mouth is work. Now, if you're, if you're trusting in that prayer, then yeah, that's not going to save you. But if you're trusting in Jesus and as a result of believing in your heart, the Bible says that it will come out of your mouth. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Then don't tell me that's works. You don't understand the word works. You've added your own pharisaical definition to the word works. You'd be like the Pharisee in the Old Testament who doesn't start a fire. And do you realize that today, today, the Jews today will not press a button on an elevator on the Sabbath day? You think that's what God meant by resting on the Sabbath day? 2 Corinthians 4, look verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith. Notice the emphasis. Spirit of faith, according as it is written, according as it is written, according as it is written. There's a quote from the Old Testament. Let's place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. According as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. People say, well, I believe and I never called. Then, look, then you're going against the Bible. And if I have to choose between believing you or believing the Bible, I'm going to go with the Bible. Every day and twice on Sunday. I believed and therefore have I spoken is what the Bible says. We also believe and therefore speak. Don't tell me that's works. It's look and live. It's look and live, my brother. Look and live. I'm running out of time, but I just want to show you something real quickly and we'll finish up. Go to 2 Kings. We're going to go to 2 Kings and back to Numbers. We'll be done, all right? 2 Kings, back to Numbers. 2 Kings chapter 18, if you can find the one and two books, they're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Kings chapter number 18, look at verse number 1. In 2nd Kings 18, we're going to fast forward many, many years, hundreds of years past the story of Numbers 21. 2nd Kings 18.1 says this, Now it came to pass, in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Hezekiah was a great king in the Bible. He wasn't perfect, but he was a good, good king in the Bible. Verse 2, 25 years old was he when he began to reign. By the way, 25-year-olds can serve God. You can serve God in your youth. Stop wasting your, t- your time as a youth and start serving God. This, this was a 25-year-old king who did great things for God. 25 years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years, 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. Look at verse 3. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. What to God that be said of all of us? What did he do? He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Look at verse 4. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves. Here's what I want you to notice. And break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Many, many years later, they had kept this brazen serpent. And Hezekiah had enough wisdom and discernment to break it apart. You say, why? Here's why. He break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Verse 4, 2 Kings 18, 4. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense upon it, or excuse me, incense to it, and he called it Neshuthan. They were burning incense to this idol. They had turned it into an idol. They were burning incense to it. Hezekiah had enough sense to say, you know what, we're going to remove the high places, we're going to break the images, we're going to cut down the groves, and while we're at it, we're going to break in pieces this brazen serpent that Moses made. It wasn't wrong that Moses made it. God commanded him to make it. But these people, these people, listen to me, these people were placing an emphasis on that brazen serpent that God never meant for them to place. They were worshiping it. And here's all I'm saying to you. Is we ought to place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. What was the emphasis of the brazen serpent? It was to be a type of Christ. Let me just let you in on a little secret. That is the emphasis of the word of God. Of him speak all the prophets. It's Jesus. Go back to Numbers 21. Look at verse 8. 
Numbers 21 and verse 8. We'll finish up verse 8 and 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. Remember the fiery serpents? They pictured sin. Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, remember the brazen serpent pictures the Savior. And remember, the looking on the serpent pictures salvation. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld a serpent of brass, he lived. Look and live, my brother. Look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. It is recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for these great stories in the Bible, the symbolism and typology, the great lessons that we can learn and that can be learned. And Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to always place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. Help us to not become so spiritual that we're more spiritual than the Word of God itself. And help us to always remember the message of the ages. Look and live, my brother. And Jesus has been lifted up on the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me what our Savior said. He's been lifted up. Help us to get the message out. Look and live, my brother. Look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. just want to give you a couple of reminders as we finish up this morning. First of all, I want to remind you we're back tonight, 6 p.m., and we're going to look at the rest of the chapter tonight.